Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Weekly Word Podcast. I'm Chris Hout, AIM Coach, and this is episode 145. And it's been almost a month since I've last podcasted a variety of adventures and different expeditions along the way. As many of you know, the Tahoe Rim Trail adventure, as it as I seem to like to call it, has happened. And the prep for it those last three, four, five, six days, as well as seven, eight days after the event required a fair amount of catching up on work and emails. As many of you know, <laughs> the, the barrage of emails and work waiting for you when you step off the grid for four or five days like I did was uh, quite surprising despite thinking I was planned well ahead and thinking ahead <laughs> of my workload. But that being said, also the last few days going into the event, no matter how much you prepare, you just want to be diligent on the details and the logistics and communicating with the people who are there to support you or might have to support you more than you expected. That sort of set up the last two, three weeks and where the centerpiece might have been the adventure of the Tahoe Rim Trail. But as you all know, it takes a little bit more than just showing up, executing, and going home. I will dive into that on the podcast in a moment. But until then, let's quickly recap what this podcast is about. The Weekly Word Podcast is an ultra-endurance resource. On this podcast, we talk more than just training. Each episode, I try to dive into all the aspects of ultra-endurance, recovery, nutrition, mindset, and sleep. I train some of the most extreme ultra-endurance athletes in the world. But, and here is the nuance, most of them also have a full-time job and a family. Not only are their adventures extreme, but they all went pro in something other than ultra-endurance. Today, we're going to dive into a few of these pillars of endurance. We're going to talk about the ability to let go of pace. We're going to talk about the daily hydration needs, especially now in the heart of summer. Some places, especially here in California, where not only it's burning, but it's very hot. But in general, mid to late August is in most places in the country the hottest time of the year. And how do we want to hydrate through that? And finally, I'm going to talk about the importance of strength training and why it has become such a large component, a bigger component in my coaching and where I've evolved from and to where I want to get to. Because that is actually a planned process. And especially a lot of my long-term athletes have been surprised how ever so gradually we're including more and more of a foundation of not only fitness, but also of strength. And I explained that a little bit. So that is what we're going to do today on episode 145. As I was saying, the work, the work that I had sitting on my desk when I came back, and it was less about athletes and their training programs. It's more about communication with athletes, their needs, their questions, their insights, some of them their injuries, some of them their nutritional needs, some of them their planning, some of them their race updates, some of them their races or events or self-curated adventures coming up. So I was sitting on that, but also in three weeks, the Coast Ride. So the Coast Ride Oregon is full and we actually have an extra person coming along over capacity, but it's one of those where 
the, the 16th person <laughs> was a, um, she's bringing her husband. So you sort of can't say no to that. Overall, we are going to have a fantastic group. It's a real fun, fit, capable group of what will be what looks like 19 riders because of um, adding Emily and I. This group will do a big, big adventure. So the planning around that these these next few weeks, these last 10 days since coming back from Tahoe has been quite detailed. I was thinking even of bringing on an extra person because I just want to make sure everybody's safe and well taken care of on the Oregon coast. And my familiarity compared to the California coast is not quite as deep. Now, sure, I've done it two times now, and the last time was just last October. So I remember everything fairly well. And especially last October, I went through most of the restaurants and most of the distances and most of the ride files and most of the logistics and most of the infrastructure and knowing that this year we will be a bigger group. I did not realize that this year with COVID, we would be this big of a group, but that's good because to me, it's just another sign of many athletes stepping out and wanting to take on an adventure. We've been all cooped up in our homes, in our apartments and so forth, in our towns, in our infrastructure of training and limited travel and limited vacations over the last few months. And I'm hoping to let those 17 riders truly stretch their legs, truly have that fresh ocean air for seven days and really just exhale into what an endurance event is over seven days. It is truly an ultra endurance event, 777 miles, 778 miles um, of cycling adds up and it's a lot of climbing, right? It's over a hundred miles a day. And those each day, those miles are pretty challenging along a rugged coast, exposed winds, could be headwinds, could be tailwinds, could be swirling winds, could be summery weather, could be wintry weather, could be rainy weather. We don't know, but it will be an adventure either way, because in general, when you put that many days together, back to back to back to back, it becomes a journey of endurance, of mental strength, of willpower, of self-control, of discipline, of self-talk, of conversation, all those things. And then you just want to get off your bike and fall into bed when you're done. And sure enough, you wake up the next morning and repeat and do it again. Overall, it takes on the vibe of an endurance adventure but you get to share it with 20 other people. SAG support, some good people on, on the team. And overall, you can just focus on riding your bike all day and we will take care of the rest. So, but speaking of multi-day ultra endurance adventures. So the Tahoe Rim Trail, what a what an, in, an interesting um, couple of days that was. And I say that because I was quite surprised on all the emotions I went through in this four-day window. I would say I came in fit, but of course not having done the type of miles and volume that I would usually do for such an event. Not having run for March and April, and then after two months of no running, starting up very gradually in May and making the decision sort of in early June to run the Tahoe Rim Trail didn't allow me to really create a platform 
or a foundation of running miles, of hundreds and hundreds of running miles that I would have liked to. But I also didn't want that to take away from the adventure. And when going through these types of adventures and the training doesn't align, because many of you might say, well, especially if you're coached by me, well, Chris, um, you would probably say no to or uh, divert my interest from doing something like that if I don't have the running miles in my legs. I agree. And my in my goal to keep you the athlete injury free stands at a higher priority than keeping myself injury free. But also I know what I'm capable of over the years, having done 1000s of running miles over the last few years, knowing where my injury tolerances are. And as well, I also knew how I was building this training block for the Tahoe Rim Trail. I knew I was only going to get to about 60% of the volume that I would usually do for something like this. And I knew that there was no FKT involved. There was no speed involved. If I needed to hike, so I hike. If it takes me an extra day, so it takes me an extra day. And so there was very little pressure in that respect. But it did create some curiosity, some nerves, because again, I didn't want to be miserable while I was doing it. And so the expectations coming in, as many of you heard on the podcast, was I was healthy, I was feeling good, I didn't have any concerns with regards to my body. It was more just at what point does the fitness run out? And in hindsight, it didn't run out. It was managed um, well enough that and, and cared for well enough that it went better than I expected it. That being said, felt good coming into day one excited, a little bit nervous because of the solo aspect. At no point in my training was I planning to do this event solo. There was a sense of nervousness, uncertainty also with those hours, those days, and just, you know, being alone. I don't have any problem with being alone, but I train alone. <laughs> I'm alone all the time when I'm at home training. I'm not the most talkative social person to be around when I train. And that's mainly because there's this old switch in my mind that when I'm training, I'm in my head and I'm, I'm working and there's a purpose and there's a methodology about the session, about the workout, about the execution, about being in it, about being present, just working and listening to my body that doesn't allow for a lot of chit chat <laughs> or small talk or social aspects. Don't get me wrong. I've had plenty of training partners who have always commented, you know, months later, years later, like, yeah, no, I didn't learn much about Chris at all. In that time, he doesn't talk. <laughs> he just goes silent or shuts down. And I know that about myself. But anyway, that's why um, in a lot of ways, I train by myself just because of schedule, because of life, um, working from home and for myself, I go during the day. And so having this adventure was always supposed to be something to share and experience with others. I feel strongly that when you do an adventure, especially a self-curated one, or you have any type of experience that sharing it with somebody else with that their eyes see it too, and you can reminisce together with that person or with your friends or even with newfound friends about a past adventure, a past experience, that's half the fun. 
That's the beauty of it. Going into new adventures, meeting new people, and then having those lifelong memories of that window of an adventure, whether we stay friends or not, that person has will always be part of that story, of that experience, of that joy, of that adventure for the rest of my life. And hopefully, I believe I do or am part of their story. And usually after an adventure like this, you sort of figure out if you're going to be friends or not. But the people I invited or set this up with, invited, I should say, um, would have all been good partners, friends, storytellers, people to experience with, laugh with, struggle with, overcome with along the way. Um, I know one is one of my closest friends. The other is somebody I don't know. The third person is somebody I've done an adventure with before. And the fourth person was one of my athletes. And I went over on all of them, which all of you have heard why on the previous podcast. So the challenge was more, how will this feel and how will I get through it alone? Um, and not having prep for that, it sort of came suddenly. Of course, in the back of my mind, you think, well, you know, you might be going about this by yourself, Chris, <laughs> but it, it wasn't really something that I put to the forefront because I continue to hold out hope that at least one other person was coming. Diving into day one, there was an excitement and nervousness, but also sort of a um, uh, not sense of loss, but there was something empty to the start of it. And I was surprised by that feeling, actually. Usually I'm like, all right, well, I'll just do it by myself. I'm fine. But I remember standing on that bridge in Tahoe City looking out over Lake Tahoe, and I put that picture on Instagram, the sun rising, and thinking, man, this would be already right here would have been a beautiful moment to just see that sunrise over the mountains, over the lake, and share that excitement and high five with somebody like, here we go, let's do this. Instead, I said that to the little voice in my head. <laughs> Overall, those first 10 miles, I would say hilariously enough, as many of you can imagine, I started off way too fast, way too excited, way too uh, 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 in my head already future planning on what I'm going to do at the end of the day because I'm feeling so good. Maybe I should extend this piece or that section, or maybe I'll run you know, further into the afternoon and get another leg done. Or maybe, you know, I was already having visions of complete grandeur. And I was eight miles in. <laughs> Luckily, I started uh, realizing that the voices in my head, I, I started telling myself to pump the brakes pretty aggressively there. And um, it started getting hotter and a little bit more difficult. And then, yeah, the, the, the legs stopped playing along quite as fresh as those first few miles. Beautiful first few miles. You see the lake rising, as in you rise above the lake and some beautiful trail. I mean, highly recommended. A lot of these sections of the Tahoe Rim Trail, I would recommend highly for a lot of you and any ultra runner because some of the sections that you can get in and out of are just beautiful. Beautiful, runnable, fun, and so scenic. 
and easily accessible and you know you're not in some sort of solitude and then um, i started having that conversation with myself with regards to you got to chill out chris because until 20 miles comes you it's not really anything that you can evaluate your fitness from and i say this to a lot of my athletes 100 milers 100 k's 50 milers the first 20 miles tell you nothing but the first 20 miles set you up for the remaining 30 or 40 or 80 miles for the rest of the race and it's very important to stay on your hydration and fueling and your mindset in not using a lot of energy early in those first 20 miles um, so that you have those resources fuel as in power and effort hydration as in obviously highly needed <laughs> but also mental energy that you have those resources available to you later on when things get harder Interestingly enough, for me, the first 20 miles was comfortable. I was trying to stay conservative, but as we all know, we've all probably been there of taking things out too fast or being too excited. And I caught it just in time to not really do major damage, but the next 20 miles, miles 20 to 40, were another 4,800 feet of elevation gain. So I, I quickly got smacked in the face like, whoa. I got to really slow down, start hiking, not uh, only running the runnable sections, anything uphill I hiked actually for the entire remaining 150 some odd miles. I did a very calculated approach of anything more than let's say 2% grade. I purposely hiked, even though I could have run, I purposely hiked. I made a commitment as of like mile 22, 23, that anything steep or anything above two or 3%, I'm hiking because I'm going to run the runnables. Anything flat or downhill, I'd like to run. I'd like to stride out. I'd like to find a rhythm. And it was a lot less of rhythm than I thought it would be. But that was a big part of a successful strategy, capturing that early on. And this was the theme over a lot of the first day and a half of reacquainting myself with ultra endurance with regards to the logistics, with regards to the pacing, with regards to letting go and freeing up your mind and being in the moment and in the present moment, taking away expectations. All that had to be just reset and let go of any type of expectations, any type of thoughts of tomorrow or later today had to start being erased and just running and hiking in the moment. And I did a terrible, terrible job on the first day. I went into it way underfueled, way underhydrated, with the wrong mindset, and just sort of, you know, way too nonchalant about the whole thing. And I not only got a rude awakening with regards to that being bonky, not having enough hydration, and then of course, falling and ripping my shin open. The interesting part on how it happened with ripping my shin open was it was on an uphill. I fell on an uphill. I was hiking and it was flattening out. And I said, all right, this is flat enough. I was still early in the day. It's like, it was a mile 26. I said, all right, well, I'm going to start running this piece. And sure enough, as I took that first step to start running again, I tripped on something. I caught my foot on something, my right foot. 
And as I was falling, my left foot fell on a, you know, split open tree that, you know, didn't get sawed off by anything. It got um, ripped off, meaning cracked off due to either wind, because I was probably at 9,600 feet, 9,500 feet at this point on a ridge, or by the weight of a tree or some sort of avalanche or something. It was just fully just emerged about a foot out of the ground. Yeah, maybe a little bit less than a foot, um, half a foot out of the ground, but just complete broken tree stump, maybe two inches, three inches wide um, in diameter. And yeah, just my shin just landed on that. It was right there on the side of the trail. Just it dug right into my shin, ripped it all pretty open. And uh, yeah, it was a, it was a pretty um, disappointing sight. I got up and I noticed like, oh, I seem to be fine. And it didn't hurt at all. But I looked down and saw my shin and a lot of white and, and, and it wasn't bleeding. It was just completely open and raw and a bunch of wood chips in it because I fell on top of the limb or of the tree stump. And so the jagged edges of tree stump sticking up got stuck in my leg like little pieces so or in my shin. So I took those out. I sat down for a few minutes because I wanted to see how badly the bleeding would be given that we all know that when you're running or exercising or training or doing something with an elevated heart rate, it bleeds way more than what it truly is, right? Like, oh my God, I'm dying. But it's just, it's, it's merely a flesh wound, right? So I thought it would bleed all over and just down into my sock and into my shoe and, and, and make it look a lot worse than it actually was. But it didn't. It stayed completely dry. So after a few minutes, I would say five or six minutes of sitting there and wondering what I should do, because I couldn't tell how bad it was. I just had that image of the first moment I looked at it and seeing the white. I don't know if that was bone. I don't know what that was, but um, because, you know, right at the front of your shin, there's not a lot of skin and padding before you get right to your shin bone. And then I was six miles backwards back to the trailhead or the a major crossing where I could have called and, and gotten help to get home? Or do I continue forward and see what happens? So that's why I sat first. I drank some fluids. I tried to clean it out a little bit, but I didn't really want to pour water on it and make it worse because it was so dry. After about, according to my, um, my watch, I think it was about a 12 to 13 minute stop sitting there. And, and just evaluating and thinking of all the logistics on who would be where and what would make sense. And do I go backwards and get out and then reemerge from that point tomorrow after I bandaged up? Do I go backwards, get it bandaged up and finish the part later today? Or do I continue going forward? Because nothing happened over the next 12 to 13 minutes, it didn't really do anything, I decided to go forward. And at this point, I still had 13 and a half miles to go. It was a 40 mile, 40.7 mile day one. And uh, so yeah, up the hill and continue to climb. Um, day one of the Tahoe Rim Trail, the way I ran it, Tahoe City to um, Mount Rose, Tahoe Meadows, it's called. It was uh, 40.77 miles with about 7,800 feet of elevation gain. And you cross over Mount Rose, which is about 10.3. 
And yeah, it was beautiful up there. It was spectacular. It continued to be a very positive, scenic, powerful experience, but a variety of things were going wrong. I had, I was out of food as of mile 30, as of about a 50K. There's nothing up there. You're just alone. There's nobody there to, to figure out food. So I was like, all right, I'll figure out the last 10 miles without food. But 10 miles at the pace I was going, because there was a lot of uphill, was about two, two and a half hours. So I was like, well, this is going to be pretty painful to go that long without food. Secondly, I ran out of water. <laughs> I also didn't have any more water but at, as of mile 30 as well. Just completely unprepared, underprepared. And then finally, the injury. The injury now, after about uh, five, six miles, the dust of the trail had sort of sealed the wound. You guys all know, you know, that dry, dark um, trail dust that eventually just gets everywhere, low below your knees. And from that, it sealed, it dried out the wound and sealed it. There was nothing, it, it, it didn't bother me at all. It didn't hurt. It was not really an annoyance. It it was surprisingly little going on. So I was happy I proceeded. But again, bonking and now um, dehydrated, I was not happy because I was starting to descend down from 10.3. The last six miles are sort of rolling and uh, net down, but I had no wherewithal. I didn't want to fall again. And I was bonking. Luckily, at about 33, three miles, I found some water, someone had stashed. And what I learned on this trail that there's a variety of stash points for through hikers and in long sections where there's no water. And I learned that especially on day two, there's gallons of water stashed in certain spots. And by coincidence, I had looked over as I was sort of looking at the scenery, got back on the trail, looked over, and there were like four liters of water in those long, narrow water bottles, uh, uh, liter bottles. So I filled up my waters, um, my, my vest, which was a mistake day one, too. I used one of those Solomon vests, running vests, with the two 12-ounce um, soft bottles. <laughs> That's it. That's it. That's all. I, I mean, I had to refuel at mile 20 with friends of mine and my buddy, Taylor, who uh, was supposed to run with me, but couldn't, but he was up there for the week anyway. And yeah, I mean, completely too little water. I mean, just stupid. Filled everything up there, drank the rest of it. Um, not all of it. Obviously, there were three more bottles there. So I didn't feel guilty that I was taking somebody's only stash. Saving grace. So I wasn't under hydrated anymore as much, but I was definitely under fueled. They didn't have food stashed up there. So the last six miles that day were just miserable, bonky, and just not wanting to fall again because I was nervous about my shin. Took me way longer than I wanted to, about an hour longer than I wanted to. Got in day one around oh, three, 2.45 if I remember properly. And one of my buddies up there for the week um, picked me up and uh, we quickly worked on food, hydration, and wound care. Those guys wanted to take me to urgent care. Emily was up there now. In the meantime, she had joined that day. Um, she wasn't there in the morning when I started. Sort of kept the injury from her until, <laughs> until I was off the trail because I didn't want to create any type of um, having her get upset 
unnecessarily. So that was day one. And I was very committed to not going to urgent care because they were going to tell me I should run tomorrow and concern for infection and you need this and you need that. And I would have been there for a couple of hours and I didn't want to do that. So we observed, took good care of it, looked at it the next morning. I slept in a little bit. I didn't get up at 4.30 to go run um, to be on the trail for uh, sunrise. Instead, woke up, took care of it, made some decisions changed my entire setup with regards to (laughs) logistics and fueling and hydration went with a backpack instead a speed pack from patagonia and took a bladder of water with me which um, i put back into the backpack i usually don't run with a bladder but this this speed pack holds a bladder there's a liter of water in there I had water bottles in there as well and the soft bottles that I put in there. I had plenty of food. I made sandwiches and off I went. And it made a world of a difference. I ran the first 20 miles, which by the way, when you're starting from Tahoe Meadows and heading down to Spooner Lake and Spooner Summit and Marlet Lake and these beautiful vistas and you're literally running on the rim above Lake Tahoe to the right of you as you're running south is this beautiful, magnificent lake, the vast size of it, and the mountain peaks and the snow around it in August, yes. And then the other direction, you're literally on the rim, like I was saying, the other is the Nevada desert. And you're looking over past Reno into this hot, vast tundra of nothingness. And it's just such stark contrast to the right, beautiful mountain, moisture lake snow (laughs) blue skies the left brown desert heat dry (laughs) so it's stunning i would recommend that 20 miles to anybody it is a beautiful section and you get out at spooner summit again easy to get picked up this this trail is so well marked and so well accessible with regards to trailheads where they have the big parking lots and bathrooms and maps and also all those jugs and jugs of water again at spooner summit they probably had 15 to 20 1.5 liter those big gallon jugs 1.5 gallon jugs of water there and they're all marked with sharpie to say tahoe through hikers i've considered myself a through hiker i was running through but i was hiking running through um hiking working my way through so i used that water and that was huge because from that that whole stretch there's not a single creek day one i was able to find a few creeks early with regards to my um, life straw and filling it up and getting enough water but day two not much of anything Um, it was difficult finding water on that side but again manageable there's enough to figure it out enough Uh, of a lake enough of support and enough of different uh, logistics that you can get through it quite reasonably you just have to be smart and prepared but the beautiful thing was also it was day two and now i'm settling in now i'm relaxing into the trail and so many of us forget that it takes practice to relax into the trail it takes practice to let go and let the pace of life slow down in nature on the trail it takes this shift but ever so gradually over the first day and a quarter that 
you finally just exhale into this beautiful rhythm and sensation and the air feels different and the urgency feels different and the vibe and the energy around you feels different and again i was pretty solo out there every now and then i would see hikers especially in the morning they were still in camp having coffee or packing up and there i would come just running through <laughs> but overall it was uh, it was a totally different pace and a totally different sensation on day two and luckily because um day one was mismanaged was bad logistics and i just sort of took things for granted and time started becoming relative i'd had no urgency to be anywhere just like the coast rides or just like long adventures you wake up you start running and you have nowhere to be and nothing to think about until the sun sets that's all i'm doing today running and hiking same as on a coast ride that's all i'm doing today is cycling from sunrise to sunset you can get pretty far in that time that um release and that um surrender to just this is what i'm doing today and i'm just going to chill out and just start running and let the day and the path unfold as it may it was beautiful it was absolutely beautiful you know it was important to keep moving because you know there's a lot of miles to be be done to, to complete that day or every day but on the other hand it was also important to not create expectations and a sense of urgency around it and i even texted emily from the top of uh, one of the passes i was stopping and having some lunch and, and hydrating and she's like well how's the leg and, and how you doing and i was like you know what i'm going to add an extra six miles to today because I'm way ahead of schedule and, um, you know, I, instead of making this a 30 mile day, I'm going to make it, a, it ended up being 35 point something miles. So an extra five miles, five point something miles. So it set up going further. And the important thing here was I wanted to get ahead of myself. I knew it was going to get more difficult. I didn't know how difficult it was going to get, but I wanted to just carry the momentum that I have and then figure it out. And I knew all the exit points where Emily could meet me. So it was easy calculations in my head. The other thing that I would say is that's really helpful is these the apps these days. I use the All Trails app for a lot. I use the um, Hiking Project app for a lot. And they are so helpful to constantly be aware that you, A, you're on the right trail, B, the distance you'd run, C, to communicate with people, because it works offline. You download the maps, they're on your phone, so even if you have no reception, the, the, the ping of your phone overlays on this map. So it doesn't need to download where you are, it just puts the ping on the map. Because the newest generation, I would think, I think I learned like three, four years ago, or maybe even four or five years ago, that all phones have a GPS ping for lack of a better description going at all times while it can't put the map like you can't load google maps when you have no reception right it's just a, a blank screen with your blue dot but if it's preloaded it will put it exactly where you are on that map and it's brilliant and so in and out of reception it will update for you if it does find a, a small signal in the background and so you always know where you are. You know that you're going correctly. It will send messages to set phone numbers that you put in once it gets reception. So in and out of the day, 
um, my friends and Emily could just click the link and see approximately where I was and my pace and how I'm doing. And I could send them a brief update, doing well, on pace, you know, nothing major. It's not like I'm sending a, a, a book on text, but um, it was enough from the app to just give them a quick heads up, all is going well. You're out there in the middle of nowhere, and if you fall or do something stupid or something awkward, it could take a long time before somebody comes. And so I was never in a sense of being worried it's just more that you want to always be present and pay attention. Have I and do many of my athletes do adventures that are way more remote than this trail? Absolutely. This is not what I would define as remote. It was, you know, within three miles down a hill as the crow flies, I was within, you know, thousands of people. <laughs> so, and I would say on a lot of the rim, you had cell service. In Desolation Wilderness, not so much. That was completely different. But on day two, not a problem. That was a really nice feature because you always know where you are, what your pace is, besides your watch, of course. And I, But it was more about, well, how can I extend this by five miles, as I was saying? And is there an out for me there in order for Emily to come get me? And you can look that up on these maps. That allowed for adjustments on the fly. Day two was positive, very positive. I finally had a, a rhythm and Emily picked me up and she had all the food and the bubbly water. Thank God for bubbly water. Um, <laughs> that's all I wanted to drink every day off the trail. Tons of Topo Chico <laughs> and any other type of sparkling water. Um, but yeah, Topo Chico definitely won it. The other thing is, I tell you, I did not listen to any books any podcast, nothing. Only on day two for a little bit and finally on day four for maybe an hour. But on day two for about 90 minutes, Brothers Osborne live at the Ryman and it's getting sort of cloudy. There were some thunderstorms in the background and you're just running along this trail. There's not a soul around and you're just sort of weaving in and out of the woods and over rocks and through these big openings and it's a gray day and not sure if any of you can remember from the instagram post but that second day i posted a bunch of pictures of those showers off in the horizon it was gray and it was windy and then you're just listening to this music it was just wonderful live really loud and <laughs> just made that last hour and a half go by really quickly which again i'm sharing all this for your adventures for your self-curated adventure for how you want to go about it don't make my mistakes of day one what are the little things you can do in order to settle into your go all day mindset which i finally found on that day but then day three happened <laughs> and i allowed the voices in my head when i started day three to take over. And this is an interesting aspect that I didn't think of when I started. Um, and that is that when you come out every night and you return to quasi, I'm doing air quotes now, society, you're having a dinner, you're sleeping in a bed, you're sort of, you know, you're watching some TV, you catch up on emails or like whatever, you're looking at your electronics, you quickly get pulled back into the pace of every day. And so here I was on the trail in a good place, but then you get off the trail and you allow the, the everyday life voices to get way too loud again. 
and sucking you back into everyday society and comforts and interests. Day three, waking up. Again, we were going to be cautious with the leg to make sure after a full day that everything looked good. Um, I slept in a little bit too long. I was not disciplined at all to properly set the alarm, wake up, and have Emily take me to the trail. Instead, I was like, well, let's make sure everything's okay with the leg. And the reason is I put that in my head. When we were going over day two that evening at dinner, Emily's like, well, how are you going to do it on day four? With camping, you have to clean that wound because every night, so day two and day three afterwards, quickly take the bandaging off, clean out the wound, shower it up, put uh, scrub it up, get as much of the, the day's dirt, which I mean, it was covered and pre-sealed, but again, sweat and stuff, clean it out and make sure everything was good. And she was like, well, how are you going to clean that while you're camping? You can't, it won't be a clean enough environment? Are you going to carry all this stuff with you? And I was like, oh, great. Well, then I won't camp. And so then these stories started unfolding in my head. Well, if you can't camp, what, how are you going to make that work? And maybe I'll sleep in a tr- in my truck at the top of the pass where one of the crossings is, and I just have to make it there. And then I'll have the stuff in the truck in order to clean it. And then I was like, well, how's that going to work? And so I allowed negativity and logistical complications or stories because it wasn't a complication to start working up in my head and then the next thing I know I swear I was like well maybe I should stop literally day three in the morning I'm halfway done and I'm thinking maybe I should stop this wound um, it's boring out there it's a I'm so low it all looks the same I'm just doesn't feel that great this and that just because of comfort Luckily, Emily was like, what are you talking about? She let me have my little pity party. She let me work through it with a coffee. And then she was like, all right, well, what are we going to do then? Because I came up here to support you this week, and we were going to do this run, meaning you were going to do this run, and I was here to support you. I am not just going back to the house and sitting there. Well, you, A, have a pity party this week. B, can't really do anything, train, right? Because you're supposedly tired. You don't have your bike along. We can't even make this week fun because A, you're going to be disappointed. And B, you don't have any training equipment along. And C, you're going to (laughs) be annoying with your friends because you're going to just want to A, have beers and B, not want to do anything. She's like, no, you, you need to get out there and run. Just freaking run and get the day started and I will hike with you I will hike the first six miles with you sorry for the background noise a lot of activity in the house right now and I'm trying to keep it as quiet as possible here in my office from that sense there we went we started hiking because the pity party was over and I was like what am I talking about I if I get through day three I'm done because day, day four I was starting to do the math I could maybe do the whole thing sunrise to sunset by 8 30 we were finally back on the extraction point from the day before <laughs> way too late way too late it is what it is at least I got back out there not saying at least I did it, but at least Emily got me back out there. We hiked uphill. The first six miles were not straight uphill. And then it flattened out a bit. We hiked a little bit longer. And uh, then I was all 
on the trail again. I was in my place again. I had put that experience and that story and those that monkey mind behind me, and I felt great. I ran and just kept running. <laughs> and from there, things really started to um, settle in. The, the challenge was on day three is that you're nowhere near the lake. It's this bizarre uh, loop slash finger south of the lake that goes from, in this case, called Kingsbury, all the way to Big Meadow and on to Echo Summit. You're, you're, you're moving away from the lake and away from the direction you need to go for most of the day. Now, it's the only way to get around and stay up high on the rim. That made it a little bit boring, quite honestly. It made the scenery the same. So for the next eight hours, I was just running through trees. Every now and then coming up on a plateau or on a ridge, but the view was just of the next ridge or the next of a forest or of a mountain below me. Now, yeah, exactly, right? Oh, pity party for you, Chris, running in beautiful mountains, you know, at 8,000, 9,000 feet and on uh, empty single track. And all you have to do is look at the blue sky and the mountains around you. I'm just saying it got solo. It got a little boring. And I started late in the morning. So by the time I was really that mandatory 20 miles in to get a good sense of the day it was already like two in the afternoon or yeah 132 it was getting hot it was a challenging part of the day starting to get really tired um at now at about 105 miles in it, um in two and a half days it was difficult i should say but again i'm starting to get past the mental aspect of Having done so many miles and I'm over the hump, I'm past halfway, I'm, I only have one more day left after I finish this day because now I've done the commitment of, I'm pretty sure I'm just going to run one full day on the, the fourth day and finish this thing out. Made all the hours that go by later that day easier. Um, the miles became strange because of that, but the day ended as the sun was starting to set. It wasn't necessarily late in the day, but as you all know, in the valleys, in the mountains, the sun <laughs> sets early. And that's when I had some beautiful views again, some high mountain lakes, huge meadows. That big meadow is fascinating. Must have been a lake at some point, and it's just grown over with grass. So you run straight through the middle of this huge, beautiful opening that looks like a meadow but clearly the way it's lined with trees and how flat it is and it it must have been a, a lake at some point just spectacular august it's all beautifully lush and green and you finally finish after a long climb and some difficult elevation game at what's called echo summit and it was a, a, it was a meaningful spot because it was where the 1968 Olympic trials were for track and field. Because the 1968 Olympic Games were in Mexico City at altitude, it was a uh, unique situation that the athletes qualifying for the Games, they put them at altitude. And Echo Summit, they cleared out this huge area, maybe the size of two soccer fields, two or three soccer fields next to each other not length by length, but next to each other, they put a track there. They put a, a, a track there, a gravel track, I think, or a clay track. I'm not sure if I remember properly. They had the Olympic trials there and it was a, it was powerful. 
because it was a really cool spot to think here in the middle of the woods, in the middle of nowhere. And you can imagine this area in the 60s, there's nothing there. Yeah, it was at the same altitude, 7,000 or 7,200 feet as I think uh, Mexico City was. And they just wanted to make sure that the athletes could compete and that they choose athletes that were able to do it at that altitude versus in Portland or in uh, Indianapolis where a lot of the Olympic trials are. So that was day three. And then that evening went quite well. Emily was now in a rhythm, had everything waiting for me. We had a wonderful dinner, quickly fueled up, rehydrated, re took care of the body, took care of the wounds. And next morning, 4.30, that alarm clock went up, off. Day four, and I was ready to see the sunrise up at Echo Summit. And I was saying to myself that I was definitely going to run sunrise to sunset, however far that takes me. If that takes me to the end, so be it. If I have to run the last hour or something in with a headlight, so be it. I was going to finish this thing. And I did. You know, it turned out to be the most rewarding, beautiful, surreal, unique first 20 miles, 17 miles of that trail of the whole experience. It was like a different planet. When you go Echo Lake up to, I think it's called Aloha Lake, the granite in contrast with the rising sun in this blue, blue, dark blue sky and these lakes, because of the granite of the rocks, the lakes stay crystal clear and see-through and they take on this dark blue hue because the granite, the white granite that goes directly in the water creates this really dark blue reflecting from the sky color and it was magical and you're running along these trails i was running let's say at 7 7 15 a.m at this point aloha lake and everybody's up there camping or just waking up and having their morning coffee and it was such a magical feeling such a beautiful location and i couldn't stop smiling because it was like i can't get over how beautiful this is and every turn i take it would be another majestic beautiful scenic vista or immersed location because you climb over a pass come down the other side completely different vibe than the other side of that pass more earthy tones more red clay dirt more red clay sides of the mountain totally different vibe with regards to how the sun hits it snow-covered peaks or not snow-covered peaks because being sun exposed or not absolutely stunning and i was running that day with a different type of um energy as well because I knew a buddy of mine was going to run towards me from um, Barker Pass and uh, that's where he parked and so I knew I was running towards someone who's then going to run with me and sure enough at about 17 miles in we ran into each other so I had run 20 miles excuse me at that point he was 17 miles in and we ran 17 miles together back to his truck where he had some supplies for me. I could top it off and run the final 20 into Tahoe City, which those were, again, those were more just the forest and the, the miles where you could barely see the lake in the background. But I knew that area. I had actually run that before. And I knew I was where I was on the lake now. A lot of the time, the first few days, I wasn't sure where I was. I mean, I can imagine it, but it wasn't as ingrained into looking over at the lake and knowing exactly if I go downhill here, where I am on the lake. 
Homewood, Meeks Bay, Camp Richardson, that whole Tahoe Vista, all those towns. I've ridden so much on my bike. We're just right below. So I got to sense how much closer I'm getting. I'm like, oh, that's Meeks Bay. Uh, that's Homewood. Uh, now I'm in Tahoe Vista. So you could get the sense all the time how much you're actually making progress and how far you're going with regards to that day and each mile. That that day was by far the best. It was the longest, 57 miles. Spectacular scenery. You know, in general, an early start allows you to get in so many miles. You start at 6 a.m. By the time, and you lose sense of time out there, right? Like you would say to me back here, well, you're going to go out for an eight-hour run. I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do the whole time? Load up the book, load up this, um, get a bunch of music going, get a bunch of food going, and then, I don't know, I'm going to make some phone calls while I'm all on the way. There, eight hours, 10 hours, they just went by. Felt like four hours. Eight hours there felt like four hours. So I would get to, let's say, noon. I'd be six hours of running in. And I was averaging just under uh, five miles an hour, never quite five miles an hour for a bigger section, just like, you know, four and three quarters to just under five miles an hour. And, you know, that's still 28 miles. So I'm, I'm almost a 50K in. I only have like 10 or 11 miles for that day to go, usually besides the last day. And, you know, it's not even lunch. <laughs> So you sure get a lot done that way, especially when you're talking to the hikers and the backpackers out there who are looking to get in about 16, 15, 17 a day. Some of the fast packers, they'll get in 20 a day. And here I am getting in double that, right? So 40 at least a day. That last day, 57. Yeah, I got in. It took me, to, I think it was 12 hours running. It was a little bit because of stops and um lunch and i took a dip in one of the lakes as well that day i think i was out there for 13 or thir a little bit more than 13 hours and i think i started at 6 10 and i was done at 7 30 that night i got 57 miles in. <laughs> so you think about it <laughs> that's a pretty far way to go in a day and you sort of feel good you know knowing that oh, from sunrise to sunset and all i did was move forward Huh, I got pretty far today, 57 miles. You know, in hindsight, the hardest part about Tahoe Rim Trail was the practice it takes to get your mind back into an ultra endurance adventure. You got to sort of tune everything out and settle back in. By day three, end of day three, surely by day four, and I can imagine five or six or seven, what I'm going to have coming up on the coast ride, you're just in a different rhythm and a natural rhythm. And I would say if I did it again, I would not get out the way I did. I would not create that tension with um, society with comforts of meals and bed and TV and just the social media age and everything just being right there. Instead, I would probably stay up there. Would I camp the whole way? Probably not, but I would probably figure it out with like a, a van that I just stay in the van at night with, and that's stocked with food and has a variety of things I need in it, but not returning to the pace and the volume of everyday life and the temptations, quite honestly. 
It takes practice to turn off the monkey mind. It takes practice to not listen to all the different voices in your head and the doubts. It takes practice to just continue to go forward and do as I like to say to all of you, keep moving forward because you said you would. I'm doing this because I said I would do it and therefore I will do it. I'm not going to allow anything other than a legitimate, real excuse excuse already is the wrong term, a real legitimate reason to take me from my word. And that's sort of, again, a reminder that that takes practice and what we do every day in our training and how we go about this daily discipline is part of that practice. That the days when it's hard, the days we don't want to, the days we're low energy, the days we're exhausted from family or work or homeschooling and all those things, to still go out and do it because you said you would, because we said we would, because I said I would, that continues to provide practice for your self-talk. Because when those voices start talking to you, and on the other end, you can just go, yeah, but I said I would, and therefore I will. That makes a huge difference. That literally creates that break that you don't listen to it. Similarly, as Emily created that break, she created that break for me. And she allowed me to quickly get my head out of my you know what, and get back up on the trail. That's important. And, and again, as part of the hindsight is it takes a good team too and support. And in this case, that support kept me from doing something really stupid, because she I would have just sat home and been completely disappointed. Because I would have probably seen that the injury was not much to be concerned about as it turned out to be as I'm staring at it now. It's healing up and just one big, huge scab that there was no reason to stop, especially if you're not, if you're running 40 or 36 on it the day after and another 40 the day after, another 57 the day after. There's no reason for that. That was the Tahoe Rim Trail, a um, positive adventure something I will never forget, but not because of the scenery, not because of the trail, not because of the distance, but because of the lessons and because of the experience that it was of returning to the ultra endurance self. And it's been a while. And this, whether it's with COVID or, you know, not having been in a place like that in probably three, four, five years. Last year's Alaska Man didn't really put me in that place. That's a one-day event in a race. Tillows and swim runs don't do that. A 100-miler definitely does that because you're just immersed for so long at such a heightened sense of focus. So it also accelerates those emotions. It condenses them into a shorter window, but very similar. So just like um, I did four days. If you took a hundred miler and condensed that, squeezed that down like an accordion into a smaller window, the the accordion still has those ripples in it, still has those ups and downs. And emotionally, I think in a hundred miler, you go through the same thing, just a more condensed window. Same as when I talked to Billy about it on his podcast, he did the John Muir Trail over three weeks. He There you expand the accordion. He had the same ups and downs and trials and tribulations, but spread out over three weeks. Doesn't make them less or more severe. It just, it actually probably is harder because you have more time to ruminate on the monkey mind and the negative voices in your head. So it becomes this 
maybe even harder game. I don't know. I've not done a three-week adventure like that. Billy being Billy Yang, who was going to come on the trip with me. And so we talked about that on the podcast of his. That being said, the Tahoe Rim Trail was uh, everything I thought it would be. It provided more from an experience that I expected it to. And I would actually recommend it to a lot of people because you can manage so many sections of it and you can truly make it a stage event. Not a stage race, but a stage event, a stage adventure, a stage experience. There are so many little sections you can do. If you did this in a week, it would be a completely different and a steady fun experience. And from that standpoint, I'm, I have some ideas in my head on how to make that happen. As we transition over to the next topics, one thing that you want to keep in mind when we're on these long trail adventures is the ability to let go of pace. And I talk to a lot of my athletes about this, that we're consistently working away from pace and running on feel. Especially in trail running, this is really important, letting go of any sense of understanding of pace, minutes per mile, what it all means, because over ever-changing terrain, mountains or flats or downhills or hiking or rocky or rooty, all those aspects, ingredients, will change how you move over that terrain. And it's more a question of energy management and conservation and pacing with regards to energy output so that in hour 5, 6, 7, 8, 12, 16, 20, you are still running versus hiking or walking, as well as you still have the energy to put into running when it's runnable sections. And this takes a conversion of the sport. It isn't just because you're doing the same motion of running does not mean you are or that you approach it with the mindset, the tactics, the technique, or even the data of road running. When you work through some of the bigger trail races and trail events, you'll notice 10 minute miles, 12 minute miles puts you in the top 10 overall. Staying connected with a number seven minute miles, 630 miles, 730 miles, even eight minute miles is completely unrealistic when it comes to the big trails and bigger mountains. Keep in mind what you're doing, how you're landing, how you're running when you're running 730s or 8s is a different form, is a different landing, is a different posture than when you're running 10 or 11 or 12 minute miles. And those are running paces. You start hiking in the 15s to 20s. 15s, you're fast hiking. 20s, you're hiking, walking. So there's a there's different technique, different efficiencies, different economies, different motions, different movements that we want to get more and more familiar with and allow our brain to really incorporate the technique as well as the mental aspect of what it means to be going that pace. And whether it is now me talking from the Tahoe Rim Trail or in general for athletes getting ready for trail races, I can't stress enough the importance of letting go of pace because it's distraction. A lot of my athletes do intervals and do speed work as we 
push further and further into the trail season or trail events or trail training. And again, we're not looking for pace. We're looking for effort. We're looking for leg turnover. So for example, I'll give them three mile. Yes, that long or four mile or even up to sometimes five, six mile uh, intervals, repeats where I would like them and they build up that tolerance where I would like them to maintain their mental engagement and their physical effort over terrain, rolling hills, even some uphill, even some downhill, of course, some flats, where the effort level remains high, remains at a 90%, let's say, effort field level. The turnover remains engaged and the mental engagement stays strong. That after 10, 12, 13, 14 minutes of pushing an uncomfortable pace, an uncomfortable effort over different terrain, that's what prepares us not only for racing, but also prepares us mentally for the difficulties of what trails and changing terrain will give us. The takeaway here is having no expectations or understanding or push or framework around pace when we're on trails. Now, of course, as we're preparing for an event or a race, there we sort of narrow it down as we go into the final weeks of the training, what our pace over similar terrain is, and not necessarily minutes per mile, but miles per hour. And so just like I was talking about the Tahoe Rim Trail, I pretty much got an understanding that after the first day, first day and a half, my pace was on hiking four miles an hour. You know, I wouldn't necessarily be going straight up for an hour. So with the flattening out and some of the downhill, it would average out where it's predominantly uphill to about four miles an hour. And then downhills and flats were about six miles an hour. So it balanced out to about, you know, five miles an hour, four, just under five miles an hour over the long term. And so then I could take that. It wasn't necessarily any type of pace that I was looking at per mile or in shorter intervals. Although I will say incredibly (laughs) numbing in the beginning, bothersome in the beginning, annoying, But in the end, I didn't even hear it anymore. Every mile, my watch would beep and give me the pace. (laughs) And so I definitely stopped paying attention to that. And I never bothered turning it off. I don't know. It was just sort of there. And a reminder for 172 of those beeps that I was moving forward. It's just little subconscious things that you hear that and you wonder, oh, not a question of pace, but more a question of, Still going, still moving forward. There's another beep, (laughs) 168 to go. Yeah, that's the takeaway. Understanding and distancing ourselves and preparing ourselves that pace, minutes per mile on the trails is something we pull the lens way back on and first focus on effort, energy, mindset, and feel. As I also noticed on the Tahoe Rim Trail, And I've seen with a variety of my athletes, one who's had some health concerns. It's incredibly important at this time of year, as the temperatures are pretty hot, pretty high. They're consistently hot from, let's say, 9 a.m. to 6 p.m., that we stay hydrated during the day. 
Many of us are prepared for hydration during our training, but it's important to stay hydrated throughout the day at this time. I'm thinking 60 to 80 ounces of water during the day, just in between sessions or after and before sessions. During the session, we're still on our usual hydration strategy of 24 to 30 ounces an hour. Keep that in mind because once we start getting dehydrated in our overall daily life, that window of an hour or two or three or four of training isn't going to be enough to stay hydrated with. And it becomes important as these temperatures continuously wear us down and dehydrate us during the day to stay on top of hydration. It affects a variety of things from recovery to our ability to sleep, to our ability, of course, to train, but overall, our general bodily functions all come from a platform of being well hydrated. One of the topics that has been coming up lately with a fair amount of my athletes, how to understand or organize or work through or plan what is next. And what I have come across over the years of doing this endurance training, whether triathlon, whether ultra running, whether events, whether swimming, self-curated and, and, and outdoor adventures and expeditions. If I train and if I stay consistent with the training with across a platform, let's say strength and some running and some swimming and some biking and some mountain biking and some gravel biking and some trails and some road and some, you know, a variety of different workouts, hiking, loaded hiking, rocking, all those things, if I mix them all into my training offering, after a while, it seems that things start to present themselves. What I'm trying to say is just train and allow it, your future event, to present itself. It will. I realize a lot of you are struggling with the lack of events. The hope that was somewhat present throughout the first half of the year is now fading into fall and winter with more and more events not only being canceled, but that hope that something might happen being or disappearing. But let's take a look at where we are and more importantly, where we want to be, go, what we want to achieve. As we're training and as we get more comfortable with the training, not only will things present themselves, but it also continues to move us forward to where we want to be. And I know that sounds vague, but the important thing around that, we all have endeavors and in the fall and in the winter, let's say before December, we weren't done with our journey. We weren't complete or whole. These events, especially due to the first half of the year, were just going to be a stepping stone along the way, not only to validate the training, to keep us motivated, but also to get a better understanding of where we're going for our bigger curiosity, for our bigger adventures, for our longer path that we see for ourselves with regards to being endurance athletes. And that's the big differentiation here. Let's look at where we are and more importantly, where we want to go, what we want to be, what we want to achieve. And would an Ironman in November been the culmination and the, the final point of where we're heading? No, I don't think that for most of my athletes. Would a 50 miler, even a 100 miler or a 100K be the culmination of where we want to go as athletes? No. 
it would have been nice to play, to test, to push ourselves, to really go into those places in 2020, for sure. But everything that I just said, test, play, push ourselves, go into those places is of course possible, self-curated. And I understand not everybody is wired and interested or feels comfortable or safe doing a self-curated adventure. There are plenty of adventures to be done with other people or to be done in places that are more safe, let's say not remote, long trail runs in the middle of nowhere. But again, there is so much out there that allows us to find the path that we've been on already. The path, as I've been saying on this podcast frequently, unfolds for us. But the important thing is that we are on the path. If we are not doing the training, if we are not engaging with our self-care and our daily fitness, that path doesn't unfold anymore. It stops. And without us continuing on the path, the ideas, the opportunities, the events won't present themselves. I would say the last three years, ever since I stopped doing Ironman, the events have presented themselves. I would enter into late December or mid-December, early January, and not have anything on the calendar, but I would train. And as I'm training, and as I'm doing strength, and as I feel myself getting fitter, the bizarre thing, and I can't really put a finger on it, is that events have presented themselves. A good insight is always, as I'm researching, am I getting more excited? Am I getting more curious as to what it would be like to compete in that? The point here is more, in order to get those opportunities, we have to be doing the training. In order to stay on the path, we have to continue doing the training. In order to sort of put closure and understanding on 2020, we also want to take a look at what was it that these last 16 weeks, these last 12 weeks of potential events would have given us, would have presented to us, would it have been our best possible outcome? I don't know. But it also seems to me it's not going to be the same experience that we were looking for in the first place. Whether it's an Ironman, whether it's a trail race where people are separated, it's not really a social aspect or a competitive aspect. It's sort of going off in waves and you're doing your thing. And of course, afterwards, you can look at the results and see how you did. Is it for validation, as in not for validation of others, but to validate the training, to validate our work, to validate our progression going forward. I understand that. But again, that could be found elsewhere. We don't need to know or organize what's next. It's in our nature. So many of us are organizers, planners, goal setters. In this space, there might be an opportunity to let go of that, to train with a purposeless tension, as they say in the Zen of archery. You have a tension knowing that you want to continue to train, do and work and perfect and repeat and train the technique and the motions and feel the fitness, but not have this culminating event out there with you. Create a sense of finality to it. Instead, just train and allow it to present itself. 
it will. I've actually come across this with a few other athletes where I've recommended this just train and allow it your next adventure to present itself. And it has quite effectively. And finally, as many of you know, I came to understanding the importance in strength training quite late relatively in my coaching years. I believed in being durable, but always had felt that outstanding fitness makes up for strength deficits, or at least strength as a limiter. With that, the time spent running, biking, or swimming does make us relatively stronger since there's a strength function in these activities, in the movements themselves. And it's important to say they're relatively stronger. Perhaps the best thing I learned regarding strength is that it helps us build a stronger overall resilience to injury. It's like an extra layer of protection for injury. Why? Think of it this way. We spend 80% of our time training the movement, the activity, running, biking, swimming, rowing, paddling, hiking, climbing, rucking, whatever it is. This builds fitness and durability because we increase our efficiency in the movement, become more economical so that we can push more power, speed, effort, strength through, into, and within the movement. It also helps in connective tissue, ligaments, range of motion, and much more. The remaining training time we usually spend on some strength work and or mobility work, stretching and so forth. How we define strength is important. We're not looking to have the effects training of let's say max lifters or Olympic lifters or power lifters, nor am I really interested in max strength gains like that max strength phase, which would be defined as, you know, three to five reps max, but you're technically maxing out at three reps and you need a spotter and so forth. Of course, very powerful strength gains at that level. But again, that's a different phase of strength. And some of us have hit that before over the years with regards to maxing out in a limited time, let's say over eight or 12 weeks, what kind of maximal strength gains we can have. But I'm thinking more for our sport-specific approach. And with that, that means what we really want to stay focused on is strength relative to our body weight, or as, a, as cyclists call it, power-to-weight ratio. The goal is to try to get athletes as strong and powerful while not significantly increasing their body weight. This is what I talk about to many of my athletes using the strength and power you already have within you or built via fitness versus trying to add more onto it and then having to put more forth more effort running, watts, cycling, and so forth in order to move that heavier, thicker, higher body mass index body over said terrain or distance. Endurance athletes have to carry their engine as well, their chassis, their entire body. Trail runners must run up and down some serious mountains. Extra bulk, fat or muscle, is not beneficial. I'm not willing to say harmful because you are more powerful, but it surely comes at a dramatic cost. There are two ways for us as endurance athletes to improve or increase relative strength. And I keep bringing up that difference, relative versus overall strength. Relative as it applies to us 
the athletes we are and how we move through space effectively through space as a runner is different through space as a cyclist is different through space as a swimmer is different through space as a paddler it's relative strength right power to weight ratio even going back to what i was talking about before it is a holy grail in cycling but it is not something that we look as closely at with regards to running so it's all relative to the sport that we're applying it to so relative strength getting stronger or maintaining strength and losing weight so we have the opportunity to attack it either way we can just get overall stronger or maintain the strength we have and get lighter (laughs) so we're good and our focus should be at doing both we should want to get stronger and leaner and use our relative strength better get stronger using that strength better maintaining the strength we have as we get leaner due to this training and the outstanding fitness we're building as we think of next season we want to think of things differently we will all do some plyometrics like we have been leg blasters step ups jump squats things like that and some work capacity training what we also grind through oftentimes but the one consistency that I'd like to add to this offseason will be focused, old school, heavy metal driven strength training. Squats, lunges, hanging squat cleans, curl to press, military press, those type of box squats, front squats, whatever you want to call them. Basic stuff, big muscle groups that also put a lot of tension on the connective tissue around it to handle those big muscle groups because we can build them slowly they're more powerful and they're more effective than if we did it too suddenly but it's overall this part that is also shifted for me and the change in understanding around what strength training is used to be around leaner lighter longer i should describe it as for endurance athletes but i've learned over time that stronger athletes are just simply harder to injure Or if they do get injured, they don't get injured as bad as weaker athletes. We're less brittle. And especially in us endurance athletes where there's so much overuse, having a stronger platform, a stronger connective tissue platform, a better tolerance for the pounding over the many miles and repetitions is going to be incredibly helpful. And if they do get injured, the stronger athletes, they seem to recover faster as well. So increased relative strength is almost like a buffer against injury. It's an extra layer of protection. It's a shield of durability. It's a platform of durability we all need. One that is not necessarily strong for our sport, that we get strong for our sport, but instead strong for our body creating that overall durability and injury resilience. The old school strength that I'm thinking of doing this offseason isn't geared towards our athletic discipline or performance. It's not for swimming or specifically for cycling or specifically for running or specifically for paddling or specifically for rocking or mountain biking, whatever. It's going to be just overall 
strength. It's geared towards making us more durable as we go into a long season of a very muscle, muscle, <laughs> musculoskeletal demanding sports. Not physically demanding our sports, but they're more volume-based demanding. We don't necessarily do short, powerful, but over long periods, long distances, we're doing a fair amount of volume. And that breaks us down. That creates the fatigue. That's the bigger issue in many cases on where the durability becomes a question. Working with endurance athletes, there came an important distinction. How do I want to approach the strength training? I was already relying on pretty much the work capacity and general fitness strength, what we're doing on the bike, what we're doing with hill repeats, what we're doing with running downhill, what we're doing with lunges and step ups and so forth. But while my athletes got stronger, their gym work numbers improved, the transfer to endurance performance was not strong enough. I started thinking about how to develop sports specific training and cycles of strength to push and change on course performance. But the problem here came to show up in other ways. For example, it almost created an overuse concern. If I'm already cycling a lot and then I'm doing 25, 30 reps of leg presses, that's very similar to the cycling motion. Well, that's not going to help the athlete get stronger. It's only going to help break the athlete down more. The major fitness attribute, for example, for an open water swimmer is lat and back strength, lung capacity, and overall muscular endurance. And so I would maybe increase their stretch cords and repetitions of lat pull downs and back work. But excessive work like this, along with resistance cords, along with the work in the pool, can lead, lead to overuse injuries. And also, what was starting to show, and I see a lot currently still in athletes, is strength imbalances. Very strong quads, but very weak hip flexors or glutes, or very weak hamstrings, or very weak calves, all quad-driven. And also, with those strength Im imbalances, this, this work doesn't acknowledge the fitness demands needed when things go wrong. Long, choppy, wind-shifting swim when you're stuck in an unexpected current and have to swim in one spot for an hour. Just needing that extra strength and needing that extra durability was not being addressed when the athlete is fatigued, tired, broken down, and in, with those strength imbalances, again, it's these strength imbalances highlight themselves at the most inopportune times when you need a more balanced muscular approach. For example, I saw that very strongly at the Tahoe Rim Trail. When my form broke down or running downhill fatigued, it isn't necessarily how many reps I did or how long I spent the time training on trails. It was now big muscle groups and powerful support muscle groups that had to carry me as well as the pack with regards to water, in this case, um, four or five pounds of water and food and so forth. While it doesn't sound like much, nine, 10 hours in of that, when the body's breaking down, like I was saying, when I was worried about falling with regards to bonking, that is where strength comes in. Overall strength training now is a big component 
of what I call, and I've called outstanding fitness this whole time. But now it's not just fitness, it's also that strength component. The strength we build as athletes acts as a buffer before and for injury. Stuff on the mountain, on the bike, in the desert, out in the open water is going to happen. Things are going to go wrong. And hopefully this extra layer of protection will take the impact. Instead of that impact leading to injury, fatigue decisions, or having to call off the adventure, expedition, race, FKT, or the trip due to injury, or due to weaknesses, or due to something else. Building fitness is one thing, but combining it with a strong integrity of our chassis, of our core, and all the little balance improvements can truly make or break the endurance athlete and the adventure you're looking to take on. All right, everybody, I thank you so much for listening this far into this podcast. I can understand that some of you might think that, let's say, my Tahoe Rim Trail debrief isn't very exciting. And I agree in many cases that some of the details and the nuances of it and the monotone description of each day might not really ring interesting for all of you. But enough details in there ring interesting and applicable for a few of you. And so when these things ring true for a few of you and are applicable, it brings out the endurance athlete a little bit more each time. And that's all I look to do with my coaching, with this podcast, with the training camps and the coast rides that I do. It's all about bringing out the endurance athlete within. I was speaking to David the other day and we were talking about some things regarding the business. <laughs> it sounds so bizarre saying the business with somebody else versus being you know, self-employed and only working with yourself. I talked to him about the overall perception of what AIMP coaching is. And it's similar to, and this is what I said to him, it's similar to the Tony Robbins Awaken the Giant Within. This is about awakening the endurance athlete within. And that is basically the mission and the message that I'm trying to awake and convey to all of you. Because when we bring out that endurance athlete, we're going to have health and fitness along with it. We're going to live a fuller life, a better life. And especially in these crazy times, our connection with nature that we're able to achieve as endurance athletes to go further into the forest, to go further up that mountain, to ride that bike further into, whether it's mountain bike, the wilderness, or further down a road on a road bike, just being out there longer only makes us healthier, fitter, and in my opinion, happier. So on that note, not awaken the giant within, try to awaken the endurance athlete within a little bit more this week or in the weeks ahead. We're hitting the end of summer here. It's Labor Day next week. And as we go into the fall, for many of you, the opportunity to get out there and run in the fall foliage or bike in the fall foliage or hike in the fall foliage is spectacular. And for many of you in the Midwest, as these best days are ahead of us, where I remember being <laughs> in college and those 
super, super nice, crisp, clear fall days, blue skies, temperatures maybe in the 60s, and you then have those freezing cold nights, and they're gems. They're these rare gems of days, but you feel so inspired and healthy and alive when you're getting out in those colder, cooler, I wouldn't say colder, cooler days, but they're clear. It's fall in the air. And to be fit for that, to take on adventures or experience the outdoors and nature in that, again, that's all the motivation I hope we need. It's not always events, it's that. It's that on a beautiful fall day, I could ride my bike for three, four, five hours and pass the apple orchards and the pumpkin farms and the mazes that they make out of hay. The fact that I can go run for a few hours on trails and the first rains have created creeks and streams and waterfalls. And many of you might not have access to that kind of nature, but just touching the fresh air on those days. I remember when I lived in New York, going for a run, even if I was just on the waterfront for 10, 12, 13 minutes of that loop, just being close to the water, the skyline, you know, Brooklyn across the river or New Jersey across the river. And just that open space made me feel alive. It was still nature. And so that's what I wish for any of us with this fitness and why we get up and do it every day, to have those glorious days. Tomorrow could be that glorious day. Next weekend could be that glorious day. Let's awaken the endurance athlete within. Just carry along the health and fitness and the joy and the vitality that comes with it. Have a great week, everybody. I will talk to you again this coming week on the episode 146. All right. Stay fit, stay healthy, stay strong.